we're actually finishing the series because next week is the question uh, Sunday, but uh, we're finishing the series called Women of the Bible, uh, Volume 2. Now, it's called Volume 2 because we already did it once and we didn't know what else to call it, so Volume 2, we'd like to do it again, but this is not going to be like an iPhone. We're not going to go Volume 3, Volume 4, 4S. We're not doing any of those things, okay? So uh, this time it's just Volume 2 because we uh, had a desire to, for as a church to learn from the primary characters, female characters that we have in Scripture, uh, because we can all learn from them. And we have three primary reasons we wanted to do this series and do it again. Number one, because women are awesome. And uh, all God's people said, that's exactly right. Women are awesome. And what's, what makes them awesome? Well, the second reason is that it gives us a full picture. They give us a full picture of the quality or character of God. And you've heard me say this before, that when God created man and woman, he created us in his image. We were equal in worth and value. We might have been different in role and function. And with that came some things that, that men were, they, we highlight a certain amount, aspect of God's character. Women highlight other aspects of God's character, and together we highlight them all. And so being able to talk specifically and learn from the female characters, the anchor stories in the scripture, is to help us see that full uh, picture. The third reason was because also uh, women are often overlooked in religious systems. Okay. Now, I believe Jesus, that's all religious systems, I believe Jesus himself, the way that he always found a way to treat and uplift and, and exalt women in his culture, I believe Christianity is the answer to that. I believe that Jesus set a great example, especially in her, his day and age when women were just a commodity, they were looked down upon, they couldn't be witnesses to anything. There's lots of context there. Um, Jesus found a way to sort of fight against that culture. And so I really do believe Christians the answer. Now, in a Christian history, like we have a long way to go, okay? We have a long way to go and lots to learn. Um, but in terms of all religious systems, I believe Christianity can do better. And so that's one of the other reasons we decided uh, to do the series. And if you were on our Facebook page or you connected, like we asked a couple questions a couple weeks ago about, you know, some of the female characters that you enjoy reading about that, that made an influence in your life. And we have so much material there. We have so many people. But the girl we're going to talk about today, her name came up several, several, several times. And last week we talked about the way we, re we respond in terms of looking at the story of Abigail. Today I want to talk about the theme around this lady's story, and it's the theme of faith. It's the theme around how, how our faith works in our lives, especially in, in the hard times and the most difficult times in our lives. And this, uh, this lady's name is Hannah, all right? This lady's name is Hannah. Now, I'll tell you some more of the significance, but um, Hannah usually gets a little bit looked over because her son um, is actually the, the one that most people usually focus on, which his name is Samuel. Uh, but the reality is, is that there would be no Samuel if it weren't for who? Hannah, that's right. So we're going to look at Hannah. We're going to look at her story and really see what we can all learn uh, from her story today. You want to turn in your copy of God's Word. You can look on your phone or your Bible. It's 1 Samuel. We're going to start there, and uh, I'll put it up on the screen for those online to follow along with us as well. Uh, there was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. It's a lot of names there, right? Now, some people tell me they don't like to read the Bible because they don't understand it. That's just a really bad excuse. All right, let me tell you what I do when I find names I don't like to read. This is what I do. He was the son of Big J and the grandson of Daddy E, and he was the great-grandson of uh, capital T, which is the great-great-grandson of Z, right, of Zuf, of Ephraim. The reason that a lot of this is there is you've got to remember the Old Testament is the Jewish historical record. 
Okay? So a lot of times when you see these lineages and things, they want you to know it, it applies to the story, not just for their historical record, but you know, Elkanah lives in the region where his great-great-great-granddad actually started or actually started their family. And so it's, it's, a, it's a history. It's a, there's got heritage there in terms of their family in Ephraim. It says, Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. And each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. And on the days that Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to Penina and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would only give her, he would give her only a cho- one choice portion. Now I need to tell you, the choice portion was a double helping. It was a big portion in terms of everybody else, but. It wants us to know in terms of this story that, that because she didn't have any children, she really only got one because the Lord had not given her any children. So Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year. Just say those three words with me. Year after year. One more time. Just say it again. Year after year. It was the same. Penina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle to worship. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Now, this isn't a marriage series, but we'll go ahead and uh, throw this out there. This would, be in the category, this would be in the Jeopardy category of things husbands should never, ever, ever say to their wives, okay? Only a man would be this stupid. I'll just go ahead and call it out there. Why are you crying? You know, year after year, honey, why are you so sad, right? Just because you don't have any kids? You have me. Isn't that enough? You know, I don't know, I don't know, yeah. Isn't that enough, you know? I'm sure he, he intended well, <laughs> you know. I, I will say this, the, the, there's a big theme here that we, we see right away in terms of her infertility that I think many of you, there's probably some of you in the room that can actually identify uh, with Hannah. That's one of, her, one of the reasons her story is so powerful. But the reality is, is that I think this is a bigger story, especially when you start looking at the things we can learn from Hannah's faith and the way she, she, her faith plays itself out in her life. And that is the bigger picture of what Hannah's really dealing with is she's dealing with barrenness. Okay? She's dealing with barrenness. And so I like to call this, for, especially for us who may not deal with the infertility side of things, that there is a place of barrenness. There's a place and a season that if you haven't already hit it, you might hit it. And sometimes you'll hit it more than once. Barrenness, when you look at its actual definition, when you look at its actual definition, really does mean unproductive and devoid of and desperately lacking and unfruitful. And so there is these, this place of barrenness that many of us can experience in our lives. And, and, and what it is, is it's, it's a longing that's so deep in you that you really honestly feel kind of incomplete without it. You feel incomplete without it, and it's, you sometimes may be ashamed to admit that, but it's such a deep desire, such a deep longing that you feel like you're devoid of, that you're desperately lacking. 
unfruitful, unproductive in your life. And maybe that for you is a relationship. Maybe that for you is marriage itself, marriage. Maybe that's for you, it's a, it's a, it's a direction in terms of job or, 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 or career, or just its direction of life because you feel you may be at a place where you're just so aimless right now. You're so, you're so unsure about life that it's a place of barrenness for you. And Hannah's experiencing this. She's experiencing this from the true nature of infertility that, that she desperately longs for children. And she sees Penina and she's making fun of and she's got everything she wants. And that's the problem with our place of barrenness sometimes is that everybody around us seems to be doing fine. We're surrounded by people who look complete you know, they have direction. They have the career. They have the answer to those things. They have the marriage that they've always wanted. They have these things, but you don't. And again, if you haven't hit this place in your life up to this point, I, I just want you to know there's, there's going to be maybe a time of barrenness and a place of barrenness that you might run into. And it's going to affect your faith. Let's continue uh, with the story. It says, once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli, the priest, was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance to the tabernacle. Hannah was in, a, was in deep anguish, and she was crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow. She said, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. That was a customary kind of tribal uh, thing that they did. And as she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, and, and seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk? He demanded, can you hear the disgust in the way that's, that's phrased? Must you come here drunk? He demanded, throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied, I, I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. Go with peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, exclamation point. She exclaimed. Then she went back and she began to eat again. And she was no longer sad. There's two things I want to just point out here. And, and part of this goes along with... Um, the place of barrenness. But I'll be honest, it's a little bit broader than that, especially when you look at her story. And, and one more thing I wanted to kind of bring out was maybe, maybe, maybe you recognize the place of barrenness in your life. Maybe you don't. But there is something here, especially when you start looking at the interaction between Hannah and Eli. And that is, is that there is, there exists around us more often than we probably realize the silent anguish of unanswered prayers. The silent anguish of unanswered prayers. 
She's pouring her, most people don't see this. It's why it's the sigh language. It's the thing that most people don't recognize in your life, but it's the thing that she knew and she was pouring her heart out to God and she's, and she's praying and she's asking. And again, year after year, she has done this. And as far as she can tell, as far as she can see, she's living with an unanswered prayer. And guys, there's, there's so many people in our lives, whether it's our top five, the people that we've, we talk about God placing in our life for us to be able to, to, to share the gospel with or to encourage, but there's just people around us, our family members, our friends, our coworkers, that you, you and I just don't realize sometimes what they might actually be holding onto, what they might actually be dealing with. That they themselves are, are sitting in a place of that silent anguish of unanswered prayers. Here's just a few examples. Maybe they have a prodigal child who hasn't come home yet, who's gone off in rebellion and has not returned. Maybe there's an addiction that has a grip and a hold of them still. Maybe there's no solution to the pain in their relationship right now, in a marriage or in relationships they're currently dealing with, and they just don't see a solution coming. Maybe there's depression and anxiety that's being managed but it actually hasn't gotten any better for them or even for a close family member. I shared this example this morning. I have a, a friend who uh, kind of would identify himself as a, as a gay Christian, which is a weird label. And he, he would identify his life as a homosexual, but he, he wants to identify as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. And so that's the identity he wants to have. But when I talk with him and, and when he's honest with me, you know, he struggles in silent anguish of an unanswered prayer, which is that, that that attraction and those thoughts haven't gone anywhere. They haven't gone away. He's trying to live his life and honor God and do what he can as a follower of Christ, but he's living in the silent anguish of an unanswered prayer. And then, guys, there's more people around us that we usually don't see. And that's part of the reason I wanted to kind of point that out in the story is that here is Eli, the priest, at the front gate, watching Hannah pour her heart out, and he doesn't have any spiritual discernment whatsoever. Doesn't have any spiritual discernment that there's something actually going on there. Why are you drunk, right? And I think most of us can learn that if we were just a little bit more attuned, if we were just a little bit more kind of aware that every single person we talk to, everywhere we go, there's going to be people in our life that are living in the sorrow, in the anguish, if you will, in the frustration, in the words she said, in the discouragement of currently unanswered prayers. But on the flip side, you see Eli's response once he's corrected. And the thing I want us to pull from this is that our words of hope matter. Our words of hope matter. Now, just to help you understand the context, um, the, the words that Eli speaks to her are not like prophetic words. They're not words of, of, of prophetic power, like from God's voice to you, uh, in terms of how prophets in the, in the Old Testament function. This was a priest who was acknowledging her pain, who said, I want you to go in peace I want you to go with peace. And he sort of joins with her in saying, I'm praying that God would answer your prayer. 
I'm, I want you to know that I'm praying that God would fulfill the thing that you prayed about, because he doesn't know. I'm praying that God would fulfill that prayer in you. And man, guys, our words of hope matter. They really do. You don't even have to know what's going on. I don't think she didn't describe fully to Eli that, that what she had prayed fully in her, in her vow to God. and what she, she just described that I'm crying out in anguish. I'm in pain. And he just says it from a blanket statement. Well, I'm praying that God hears you. I'm praying that God would do what it is you are asking him to do. Guys, we have an opportunity as followers of Christ for our words of hope and our, the hope we point people to, the absolute hope of Jesus, that our words of hope matter in their life. We can't fix it. We can't solve it. Eli didn't go, well, I've totally spoken to God and there you go, zap. You know, like he didn't, there was no, there was no transaction happening. It was just him being able to speak hope into her and she goes away happy. She goes away uplifted. She goes and eats and worships God. I was thinking of an example, just examples that came up this week where one of our partners is struggling with a broken relationship something they can't seem to fix and something I obviously can't fix, but it didn't, didn't stop me from being able to understand that there was an opportunity that I had to speak words of hope over her and, over and into her. One of our partners this week got a less than desirable diagnosis of some things that are kind of popping its head up and, and it could be worse. It could be a worse scenario than, than they could possibly imagine. And and, and, and that they're asking for me for prayer, and I have the opportunity to just say, yes, I'll pray for you, but there's always the opportunity, guys, to speak words of hope, to be able to bless someone and speak words of hope over them. Several folks that I spoke with are struggling through the wake of a really hard transition, and it's not anything I can fix, and it's not anything they can fix, but it's an opportunity to speak words of hope because our words of hope matter especially the words of the absolute hope of Jesus Christ, matter to people. They can change how people handle and work through their unanswered prayers and their place of barrenness. As we continue the story, it says, the, the entire family got up early the next morning. They went to worship the Lord once more. And, and then when they returned home to Ramah, they, they, Elkanah slept with Hannah, and the Lord remembered her plea. That's how you know this was not transactional with Eli, but, but God remembers her plea. And it says, and in due time, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for he said, I asked the Lord for him. The next year, Elkanah and his family went to their annual trip to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and to keep his vow. But Hannah did not go. She told her husband, what's that word? Yeah, 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 no, we don't, we don't like that word, but just let's all say it together one more time. She told her husband what? Wait until the boy is weaned. Then I'll take him to the tabernacle and leave him there with the Lord permanently. Whatever you think is best, Elkanah agreed. By the way, men, you should be writing these things down. What not to say, what, what to say, Right? Whatever you think is best, Elkanah agreed. Stay here for now. And I love these words. And he says, and may the Lord help you keep your promise. May the Lord help you keep your promise. So she stayed home and nursed the boy until he was weaned. 
This is not anything, I'll be honest, this is one of those really, really loose thoughts that I just want to give you because it's something that I felt God impressed on me. And so <clears throat> this is not something I feel like I have a good application or, or solution <clears throat> for you. But there is a contrast that shows up here that I believe shows up in our lives far more often than we would care to admit. When you see this story of Hannah and her anguish and her sorrow and her unanswered prayers and her pouring herself out to God, that God would hear her and that he would answer her prayer and he would follow through. And not presuming anything on Hannah, because I know Hannah's story, but in this moment in time, there's the opportunity to go back and, and sort of keep the vow. And she says, oh, wait a, wait a minute. Maybe he should be weaned first. Just, just hold on. Just wait. And the contrast is this. This is just something I know that we all struggle with. You see, God must follow through. Everybody say must. Must. God must follow through. However, we, what's the word? Yeah. We might follow through. I want you to see what we do in terms of our perspective with God, in terms of how we currently function. It's not that different. You know, in our day and age, in our current sort of on-demand, sort of quick-acting, sort of like, you know, uh, you know just, just sort of, it's really entitled culture that we live in. If God takes even a second longer than we think he should to answer a prayer... If God has the audacity to answer our prayer with wait, then our faith crumbles. God's not real. He doesn't care. He doesn't love me. He's not able. Why? Because God must follow through. He must do what he said. He, I'm going to take some obscure promise in the Old Testament and slap it like a bumper sticker on my life. And Well, God must do that for me. And he must do it in the time frame that I feel it should be done. But when it comes to our vows to God, to our commitment to him, in terms of our commitment to what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, well, I might, maybe, possibly follow through with that. It just depends. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Please don't, by the way. How many times you might have actually prayed a prayer like this? God, if you would just do this, I promise I will never do this again. I will never drink that much again. I will never text and drive again. Oh, God, if you could make sure she's not pregnant, I won't even hold her hand again. How many times have we prayed the prayer where, God, you must, God, please, but I, and I will, or I never will, or I promise, or I vow, or I'm just telling you on, on, on my mom's grave, you know, on God, on your word. Because we treat our promises and commitment to God the way we treat every other commitment in our life, which is something we do if we feel it's convenient and we don't do if we don't want to. We, we, we do it if we feel like it's beneficial to us and we don't do it if we feel like it takes away. There's loopholes. There's, there's things we can work around. And yet we have the audacity to place the must on God 
while we are perfectly comfortable living with the might on ourselves. And that's a really hard contrast. And it affects your faith. It affects your faith. This is why the words of Elkanah are so incredibly wise. Not just the whatever you think, dear. That's just wise as a husband, period. That's just wise. But when he looks at her and says, I'm going to pray that God would help you keep your promise to God. May the Lord help you keep your promise to him. Why? Because, guys, that's the only way our promises are ever going to happen. That's the only way our commitment to him even works. That's the only way when we make those sort of prayers and those promises, oh, God, if you'll let that promotion happen, I swear I'll start tithing. God, if you let that sale go through, if you can let us have this bigger house, if you can do this, if you, I swear I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do more for you. I'm gonna, it's not even within you to keep that promise. But it is within the power of Christ working in you to help you keep that promise. So Elkin is dead on here. Hannah, I mean, the thing she prayed for, that she begged God for, the place of barrenness, of, of lacking and unfruitful and unproductive, was finally here. She finally has a son, like dead on answer to prayer. And now she is going to give him back and give him away. Can you imagine the tension that you would have with that? And so Elkin is not wrong. He just says, I just pray the Lord will help you keep the promise you made because that's the only way this kind of promise could have even happened. God must, but we might, and there's the only way that it works for us is to trust in his power through us to help us keep our commitments. Now we do see in the story, we do see that when the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh, and they brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. That means there's a party, just to let you know. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I'm the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me a boy, and he has granted my request. He came through, and now I'm giving him to the Lord. And he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And then they worship the Lord there. Now, just to let you know, please don't drop any children off at Journey Church. All right. That's a, that's a public service announcement. All right. I love this. Because it is the picture that she does follow through. And if you go on to read, I'm not going to read it for you. If you go on to 2 Samuel, or sorry, 1 Samuel 2, you read Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving. Very different than her unanswered, silent, anguished prayer. She prays this prayer of thanksgiving, thanking him and having gratitude for what God was able to do. And now she's giving him back to God and he belongs to her. And she, and she really somewhat prophesies some amazing things that Samuel's going to do. And it is true. Samuel's going to be the last judge and he's going to be the first prophet. And he's going to instill the first king of Israel. Samuel is a critical person in the Jewish history. She kind of prays this and even, even sort of speaks that out over him. And then a little bit later, just for the context of the story, a little bit later it shows that each year, every year, his mother made a small coat for him, for Samuel, and brought it to him when she came with her husband to the sacrifice. So they were able to see him every year. And mom brought a coat. Isn't that a great mom thing to do, make him a coat every year? 
But they were, when they, before they returned home, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you other children to take the place of this one she gave to the Lord. Now, the, you know, this is not this is not callous language like a kid can take the place of a kid. But this was just his way, again, of speaking hope and trying to bless the family. But the Lord did bless Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Bottom line, and this is just where we're going today, in terms of what we learned from Hannah, is that Hannah's faith in God, Hannah's faith in God is the fuel for her hope. Hannah's faith in God is the fuel for her hope. How she responds to her place of barrenness, how she responds in that silent anguish of unanswered prayers, how she responds in terms of believing it, even when she didn't see it happening, she believed and trusted that God would hear her prayer, that God was able, and God fulfilled that prayer. But it was her belief, it was her trust, it was her faith that actually propelled and fueled her hope that one day it would happen. Now for us, we know, and this is our New Testament language from the writer of Hebrews, this is how hopefully you've been taught in understanding what faith is and what faith means. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 says, faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's confidence in what hasn't happened yet. And assurance of what we do not see. It's confidence and assurance. That's what faith is. It's confidence in what hasn't happened yet, and it's assurance in what we can't piece together. It's an assurance of what we can't see yet. It's an assurance of what we believe is there, but we can't tangibly see it. Confidence and assurance. And later on, the, the, the writer says that without faith, without that kind of faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You know, it, they must have that faith of, of understanding that, yeah, we put that on God, that he must follow through. But even when we are sitting in the anguish of unanswered prayers, even if we're sitting in a place of, of barrenness, that we believe he's present, that we believe he's there, that we believe he's with us. And our faith is not that we can fix it. Our faith is not that another person, a priest, or uh, someone in your life can fix it or, or do it for you. But our, our faith, our trust, our confidence and assurance is in that God can only do what God's going to do. And we have to take our eyes off of what we cannot do because that's where Hannah was. She's like, I'm praying this to God. I'm taking it to him because there's nothing that my husband loves me, but there's nothing he can do. I desperately have this longing, but there's nothing I can do. God's going to have to do it and fulfill it. And that's where her faith, her confidence, her assurance was. I love this example. Many of you, I've shared this with you before, but about every year-ish in the summer, I like to read through Romans. Um, I, do, I have several books I read throughout the year, just I like to go back to them. But I like to read through Romans, and I like to read the message paraphrase. Okay, I read all sorts of translations, and you know, if you don't like the message, that's fine. But it's a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, and I just happen to love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases the book of Romans. It's phenomenal. It, just, it makes it come alive to me. 
So I'm going to read you this section. This is him talking about Abraham. This is from Romans, talking about Abraham and Sarah, another situation of barrenness. And I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this. I'm going to read it for you. You just, just Here's the reference in case you want to read it on your own. Abraham was first named father, but then became a father because he dared to trust God to do what only he could do. Raise the dead to life. Make a, make, with a word, make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding not to live on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. And so he was made the father of multiple peoples. God said to him, you're going to have a big family, Abraham. Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence and say that it's hopeless. This hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's decades of infertility and give up hope. He didn't tiptoe around God's promises, asking cautiously skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise of God, and he came up strong ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. I love those words because they just come back to me often that, that even when it looked impossible, Abraham believed anyway. And he didn't spend his time and his energy and his faith focused on what he could not do. He spent his time and his prayer and his energy focusing on what only God could do, raise the dead to life. With a word, make something out of nothing. That's what God can do. That's what God can do for you. And that's what he chose to focus on. That's where his faith remained. So I don't know where you are today. I'll, I'll end with this. I believe there are people today that came to journey that are in a place of barrenness. I really do believe that. As we prepared for this series and prepared for this week, I believe there's people struggling to come to church and struggling to come and worship because it feels inauthentic to express words of gratitude when they don't feel gratitude. They appear, they know that he is our living hope, but they don't feel. They're not connecting the dots in their place of barrenness that he is our living hope. And so if that's you today, if that's you just in a place of barrenness, I just want you to know that he hears you. He is hearing your prayer. He loves you. And I'm going to join with you in prayer that God would answer the longing of your heart. That thing that you feel makes you incomplete. That he would either help you understand how complete you really are in him or that he would answer that prayer in your life. For the rest of us, I'll be honest, I think that the challenge today that I want to give you is just be more aware of the people in your life who have unanswered prayers. Have the spiritual discernment that Eli did not have. That when people around you and you go and say, say hello to somebody and they say, you ask them how they're doing and they say they're fine and they're not fine, right? They're not, they're not good. That even if you don't have a chance to, to, to speak into the details of it, that you have an opportunity to speak words of hope that will matter to them and will matter in their life. And that for all of us, really, our faith, guys, our faith is the fuel for our hope. It is. Our trust and assurance and confidence, even in what's not happened yet, even in what's not seen, is what fuels our hope, our absolute hope in Jesus.
Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for Hannah's story, and not just, not just because she gave birth to Samuel and all that Samuel would do, but I'm, I'm thankful in this moment we have the record of her faith and her hope and the way in which she not only made a vow to you, but that you know, she, by your strength and by your power, she kept her promise. God, there's in a room this size with this many followers of Christ, there's so many promises that we've made to you. God, we ultimately need you to help us fulfill and keep the promises and commitments we've made to follow you. God, I pray this morning specifically those who might be in a place of barrenness that you would meet them where they are, that you would give them peace, and that even if they came into worship today, God, with a weight, even if they came in today with, a, with anguish, I pray that you, they will go with peace. They will leave this place happier than when they came in. They will leave this place with hope because of who you are. And God, I pray that all of us as a church, just Journey in general, the people of Journey, God, we would be a people that would have the spiritual discernment to, to be compassionate to those that we engage who really are living with unanswered prayers. And that we would understand that we, we've been given the words of life to speak hope and life to others. And that those words of hope really do matter to people. God, use us today, use us in every way you've called us as we will follow you and give our hearts to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.